Hey, everybody. It is another special episode of the One Giant Podcast. Scott Mason stops by to talk about the Jets, the Giants, the draft in general, and just, again, surviving these times of isolation. But as always, let's drop that brass. And so we officially welcome you back into another episode of the One Giant Podcast and excited, as always, to, to now welcome in a familiar face to the show, Scott Mason of, from from my standpoint, the Play Like a Jet podcast, but obviously you probably know him from a ton of different areas that he's working in. Scott, as always, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. And I have to say, draft time for Jets fans ends up being like Christmas week because it is the time of year that we're not disappointed yet. We're still looking forward to what the Jets may do and how the season may turn out. And typically over the last decade, the season has disappointed us. The draft has often disappointed us, but usually later on, like we're all happy when that draft is actually happening. We're unwrapping the gifts. It's not until a year or two later that we start to realize that we didn't actually get the gifts we wanted. In reality, we got the tube socks that grandma gave us that we weren't really asking for. So, but still for now, this has been, this and free agency has been the highlights of the season for the Jets. I'm hoping that if they do well in the draft this year, that'll begin to change over the next couple of years. Because as you know, the draft is the lifeblood of any NFL team. And if you're doing it poorly, as maybe in Jets and especially Giants history over the last handful of years, if you're making some mistakes there, you know, we've had some hits, obviously, in more recent memory. But the stretch that we went through with the, the Eli Apples and, and the Eric Flowers of the world, you, you, you'd wish for tube socks at that point. You'd love to have them have gotten, you know, gotten a, a nice set of functional clothing that you could enjoy for a couple of years before you gave them away to goodwill. Instead, it was basically shoving that thing in the back of your closet and wondering if you could possibly do a Yankee swap of some kind. Uh, do you go Michael Scott style on it? Just Yankee swap. <laughs> Let's, I'll take your left tackle. You take Eric Flowers, you sons of guns. I'll see your Eric Flowers and I'll raise your Vernon Golston. <laughs> mm. You know, what's so, it's, it's so funny too because – like you said, leading up to this, this this time period is fantastic. Although I know on the Giants side of things, fans are already talking about if they do this, it's a, it's a disaster. If they don't trade back, if they don't go offensive line, I'll be disgusted. So there's also already that level of expectation that, or maybe it's fearfulness of, of don't ruin this for me, right? Don't, don't ruin <laughs> this for me. Especially, you know, we draft four as of right now. You guys are sitting there at 11. And I feel like mm -hmm. fan bases, you don't have to wait long to know whether or not you're completely disgusted or rejuvenated with optimism. I feel like right now you have to be optimistic after the pick is when things start to turn. The tradition for Jets fans is that no matter what they do with the draft pick, almost always the fans are upset about it. Mm -hmm. So even when Sam Darnold was drafted, there were contingents saying, why didn't they draft Josh Rosen? Or why did they even trade up? They could have had Rosen or Allen at six. So there's always people that are unhappy no matter what the team does. I think the one time that I remember fans being almost universally happy was back in 1996 when the Jets drafted Keyshawn Johnson. But I think part of the reason for that 
is because they had the number one overall pick. And so everybody sort of knew what they were going to do for weeks. And everybody had sort of talked themselves into it, whether they thought it was a good idea or not. I loved it. I was a huge Keyshawn Johnson fan. I was devastated when they traded him to Tampa Bay. But that was the last time that I remember Jets fans all sort of being on the same page. Darnold, people were happy because they were so thrilled to have a quarterback. But as I said, there were still some people second-guessing. So, yeah, that, that's what we're looking at with the draft right now. Be, we're going to all be optimistic at the moment, and then we're going to get to a point where you're going to have at least half the fan base upset. Yeah, and if enough time, right, when you know you're locked into your selection, if you have a few weeks, like you said, in the case of Keyshawn, wh- whether whatever he turned out to be, if you have enough time to say this is going to be the pick, you can assume it's locked in, then by the time it comes around, you get to, oh, yeah, of course, of course, I love it. I- I've already massaged mm-hmm. my mind into loving what my team has chose to do. The The interesting thing, I think, coming into this draft for the Giants and the Jets and kind of the overlap of it is – we have a lot of similar needs, you know, coming into right. this draft, especially at the, at the top end of it. There's there's been some scenarios where I've run some mock drafts and I, I get offered a delightful trade from the New York Jets to come up to four. But <laughs> if you guys want to send back our third round uh, the package, I'm going to knock. But do you think that there's by the end of this draft? Do you think that Giants and Jets fans can maybe be sitting there and, and looking across at one another's takeaways from the draft and saying there's some similar players that maybe we would have wanted for one another depending on if we go offensive lineman at the top of the draft and maybe the Jets as some speculate if there's a wide receiver that falls there who do you take in the second round where do we look at that point and are we going to maybe again be saying well maybe we could swap around some players and leave both fan bases that much more satisfied yeah it is interesting because like you said they do have some similar needs especially at offensive line, the Giants could certainly use an extra wide receiver. We know that the Jets need wide receivers. The Giants could certainly use help at edge rusher. The Jets absolutely need an edge rusher. The Giants could certainly use some help at corner. So could the Jets. So I guess what I'm saying is that both teams have done a really bad job of building their <laughs> roster. He's not naming all the most important positions on the football field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fantastic. All the cornerstones you want to have locked up before you head into a draft is just what these teams are going to be needing. I, I guess you do get lucky in the sense that, again, talking about fan bases reactions, right? Giants go with Jones at six last year. Not necessarily the most welcomed at the time, but it looks like both teams have their QBs locked into place. We have some talent at different positions around these rosters. You, you mentioned wide receiver. Giant, uh, Jets rather go out there. You bring in Perryman. Marquise Lee just gets cut from the Jaguars. Is that That's a Band-Aid on the situation for the Jets, obviously. I think that that's still a high high need for you guys in the draft. Do you have a preference about saying – double down on a band-aid scenario and maybe sniff around Lee and bringing him in the short term? Or do you have this goal for the Jets of saying you need to come in here and lock in the number one connection for Darnold heading into this season? Well, I think that what we've seen in the NFL in the last bunch of years, and this has sort of been a tried and true formula is that there are a variety of ways to win, but the most concrete way to build a winner in the NFL is to have an above-average starting quarterback and have an offensive line that keeps him clean and a defensive front seven that destroys the opposing team's quarterback, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, this all boils down to if one of the four 
top offensive linemen, and I like all four of them a lot. And it's funny because the more, the more you talk to different people, you're going to find that almost everybody has those four offensive linemen ranked in a different order, which just is amazing. And it shows you how deep the top of this draft class is as far as offensive tackle, because I really think that any of these four guys would be offensive tackle number one most years. But I think that the Jets, if one of those guys is available, have to go that route because I'd like to see them get at least one wide receiver, perhaps two. And this is the draft where, you know, Daniel Jeremiah has 18 of his top 100 on his big board are wide receivers. He has 27 wide receivers with a round three grade or higher. Eric DaCosta, the general manager of the Ravens, he said that he believes that he can get a wide receiver as late as the fifth round that could come in and make an impact day one. So mm-hmm. I think that you could get wide receivers in the third and the fourth, or of course, in the second, if you want to go that route, as good as these receivers are at the top of the draft, if one of those tackles is there, I just can't fathom going in that direction. And I'll tell you one thing too, not that I expect this to happen, but if Jeff Okuda were to drop it all and mm-hmm. get to number 11, and I think that there's, maybe a 1% chance of this. I would jump on that in two seconds because I think Akuda is going to be an absolute all-world player. His footwork's incredible. His athletic testing's off the charts. His instincts are great. His tape is all-world. His football intelligence is tremendous. Even just listening to him talk about dissecting opposing offenses. So I know a lot of Jets fans would be angry with that because everybody thinks that this draft is all about getting offensive weapons and to an uh, an extent it should be but if a player like that drops I'd be all over that I wouldn't take a receiver at 11 though unless I felt completely boxed in so if all four tackles were off the board and I just didn't have a trade down that I felt comfortable with and I was stuck at 11 making that pick then maybe I would go with Judy Lamb or Ruggs but other than mm-hmm. that, I probably mm-hmm. would not go receiver at 11, especially when you consider that this draft is so deep at wide receiver, and I just don't think receiver is nearly as important as the other key areas of need, especially offensive line. So now then, when you think about – it's really for both of both of these teams – in, in the scenario that the Giants say go with Simmons at four or maybe trade back a couple spots, you know, move around a little bit and don't go offensive line, even if the Jets were to go Okuda, if he's the man who's available, or maybe you get boxed in and take wide receiver, when you then get up to that top of that second round, I think both teams could be in that position. Now, to your point, very deep wide receiver class. Now, on the Giants side of things, we have that issue of having that enormous gap between picking at the top of the second and then getting back to our compensatory third, whereas the Jets are going to have this flexibility with that extra third round pick to be able to maybe package, you know, move around and target if they need to. If you were to come out of that first round without having addressed offensive line, one of the names that I I keep coming back to when you get beyond that, that, that top four, uh, the offensive class, then I think, you know, the Josh Jones, the Ezra Millers, I know they're all mixed. uh, Sorry, Ezra Cleveland, excuse me. They're all mixed in there together. But I keep mm-hmm. falling back to Isaiah Wilson and looking right. at him and saying, here's a player out of Georgia. They, they looked at him and said, next year, if he had gone back to college, he shifts around to the left side, replaces Andrew Thomas. All the grades on him indicate that he's going to be a guy that can develop into a starting left tackle for you. 
do you try to, is that, is that a target area that you go to or how far are you willing to then say, based on what you do in the first round, is is there a scenario where you wait, where you don't think you need to attack offensive line in the second round? And for the Jets, obviously that flexibility of being able to maybe move around the board and make sure that you address those needs, where do you stack those pieces up? Because it sounds like you're saying, if I were to get locked in, and or maybe I get lucky enough to get Okuda in the first at 11, I can go offensive line at the top of the second and then worry about wide receiver in that third round where I have multiple picks. Uh, the problem for me is, other than Josh Jones, I'm not really in love with the other offensive tackles. There are a couple that are okay. Yang had some injury issues, but he has some potential. I do like Wilson, but I think Wilson's going to end up going late first round and trading Mm -hmm. back into the first for him to me is a little too rich because I think he's going to be a good tackle, but I don't think he's going to be great. I don't, I think basically the way I would rank these tiers and I said this on the podcast is I have the top four guys on tier one. Josh Jones tier two, and then everybody else is tier three. I actually, at that point, if I had Okuda at 11, or if I was somehow forced into taking a receiver at 11, I would probably at 48, if I could see, this is where, if I could move up a little bit, I might do this, but I might be looking to move up a little bit, depending on where Cesar Ruiz, the guard center Mm -hmm. from Michigan goes, that might be the guy that I look for. And then I would probably be on the phone almost immediately after making that number 11 pick with Jason Peters agent and say, Hey, what's it going to take to get you in here on a one-year deal? Because quite frankly, I don't know that I like any of the rest of these offensive tackles to come in and start day one. And the jets are in a situation now where they have George Fant, who was essentially a third tackle for the Seattle Seahawks. And he's still learning the position and he's 28 years old. And that's really a wing and a prayer and Chuma Adoga, who had his moments last year as a rookie, but overall was not all that good. He's coming off an injury. And you don't want to go into year three of Sam Darnold, where your two tackles are completely unproven commodities. You've got to get somebody in there that you have faith in that can come in day one and be an upgrade over what you had last year. So if they miss out on a tackle at 11, I think they absolutely have to call Jason Peters' agent and get him in here on a one-year deal. I also think that Joe Douglas would be wise to have some sort of deal parameters worked out with the Carolina Panthers or perhaps the Jaguars somewhere in that range in case they have to jump to go up and get the tackle that they want because I just don't feel like they can afford to miss out on one of these guys. Now, look, I think there's a at least a 50-50 shot that one or more of them is there at 11. It really depends on how the board breaks, but that's not a chance I'd be willing to take. I'd have something in place in case I needed to make a move. I just think they absolutely have to come out of this with a tackle one way or the other. So like I said, if the doomsday scenario happens and they're unable to get one of those four, I would go and try and get Peters, and then I would probably try to work my magic to get uh, Luke uh, to get uh, Caesar Ruiz in round number two. Uh, if I had to move up from round number two to the back end of round number one, maybe. But I just, like I said, those other tackles, those are the kind of guys that I would feel better about if I had established guys. But I think that most of them are not going to be ready to start year one. And quite frankly, a lot of them 
I'm not so sure that I believe in them long term to be anything more than okay. Like Austin Jackson's an example. I don't think much of Austin Jackson at all. And I know he had the bone marrow issue, but he was getting destroyed by AJ Epinesa and Bradley and I. If you're getting destroyed by those guys, what's going to happen when you're a left tackle in the NFL and you have to stand up against the top edge rushers? You're going to get beaten to crap because he's just not physically strong enough to handle it, I don't think. I think his ceiling is an okay player, and he may go in the middle of the first round, which is bonkers to me. So, yeah, that's what I would say. I w- either you got to have a deal in place to jump up and get that tackle or if the absolute worst-case scenario happens – Get on that phone and get Jason Peters in here because you cannot go into next season with those two tackles as your only options. Yeah, you know, and it feels like it feels like for the Giants, I know the, the possibility of trade downs, but more and more, my sense has always been that for if you if you say locked in there, fine, you take the tackle. I, I still stand kind of on this. Andrew Thomas for me makes makes a ton of sense, but. Those four guys that are in that group, take your pick, whoever you want to go with. Maybe it's Wills, right. uh, you know, certainly Tristan Wirfs across the board there. But that's why, again, I, and I think maybe it, it leans into that. Lock that up in the first round because then at the second round, especially where the Giants are with the issues in the third round, lack of selection there, to be able to say back down a little bit from the, from the 36th pick, grab yourself a mid, a mid second and a mid third so that you know you can address these issues. A, a couple of things that you touch on there that I'm curious about is one, the center position. You know, Andy and I have debated this a little bit on the podcast in terms of when and where the value of the center should be assessed in terms of targeting. Now, Ruiz seems to be the clear cut worthy of an early second round selection to take him. Do you draw a line in the sand as far as, positional value and need obviously all plays a factor into it. But the, the sense that I'm getting from you is if he was there at 11 in the second round, you'd be or 48 for you guys. You jump at the opportunity to take him and plug him in. Does that matter to you at all as far as across the offensive line and, and where you think the most important pieces need to line up there? Yeah. I mean, they obviously need to tackle more than anything else, but I think Cesar Ruiz is the kind of player that can really change the culture of an offensive line. He's just straight up nasty. I love what Jordan Reed from the Draft Network told me when he came on the show. He said, Cesar Ruiz is a sandbox bully. And I think that's the perfect description of him. I'm not saying he's going to be as good as Nick Mangold, but I think that he has that same type of quality about him where he's just a guy that's going to destroy people at the line of scrimmage. And he's somebody that can completely change the attitude there. And the beauty of him, too, is that he can play center or guard. So they signed Connor McGovern in the offseason to play center. But Connor McGovern spent two years at guard before switching to center out of necessity when Matt Paradis got hurt and then left for Carolina. So if you have him, then you've got two guys there that could start at guard or center. You can mix and match because everybody will talk a lot, Adam, about how the Jets went out and revamped this offensive line in the offseason, but what did they really do? They got George Fant, who's not a proven starter. He started some games here and there, but he's not a guy that was relied upon on a week-in, week-out basis as a starter, and he was very, very spotty, and that's being kind when he did play. You've got Greg Van Roten, who's a 30-year-old journeyman who was okay for the Panthers the last year plus, missed the last five games with an injury, Maybe he's a minor upgrade over Brian Winters, but I don't think it's that drastic of an upgrade, if anything. Alex Lewis, who's missed an average of six games a season, comes back. He was okay last year when he was healthy, 
but he's not a long-term answer. And all these guys, by the way, are on glorified one-year contracts. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing to think about. None of these guys are really long-term answers. Connor McGovern a little bit more so. He's actually a good player, and he is going to be here for at least two years. So he's the one that you look at as more of a long-range answer. But the rest of these guys, yeah, they they have different faces here, but most of them are not necessarily better. In fact, I would say with Fant, you could make a credible argument that they downgraded, at least in the short term, at left tackle because Kelvin Beecham may not be anything special, but at least you knew what he was. With Fant, you're really, really – I forget who said this. Uh, a friend of mine hosts a, a podcast and, and had on a, a former offensive line coach – and he said something along the lines of this guy is more uh, less of a um, cross your fingers guy and more of a hold your breath guy. So <laughs> you, when you go, <laughs> isn't that always the ideal yeah. scenario? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not, not for anybody who wants to protect the quarterback. So I think when you go in, when you go into the season with that as your tackles, tackle is the number one priority, but they do absolutely need to revamp the youth of that or the core really and youth of that offensive line in every area. So the thing about Ruiz is you can put him at center or guard. And I think he could be a starter day one. And I think he's the kind of guy that could be a starter for 10 plus years. And so that's a guy that I would absolutely love. If he's there at 48, uh, it would take me the snap of the fingers to run in my card. My dream scenario actually is to get one of those four tackles at 11 and then at 48, get Caesar Ruiz. I don't expect mm. it to happen though. I just think that Ruiz is going to end up going somewhere toward the back end of round one. I do think though, if Ruiz slips to let's say around 40 or so, the Jets should at least investigate the possibility of jumping up a little bit and grabbing him there. But yeah, I mean, absolutely to me, rebuilding this offensive line and the positional value of that is crucial more than anything else the Jets have got to fix this offensive line here in this draft or do whatever they can to if they can walk away with at least two starters on the offensive line or two potential starters I think that's a big step in the right direction and like I said my dream scenario here would be one of those four tackles at 11 and Ruiz at 48 I think for the Giants what's interesting here is you touched on the need for an offensive lineman. And I agree, there's no question about it. But I wonder if Gettleman looks at Isaiah Simmons and just thinks he's too good to pass up, sort of the way that he did with Saquon Barkley a couple of years ago when everybody was screaming that the Giants should take a quarterback. And he mm -hmm. just felt like Saquon Barkley was his generational talent. I think he may look at Isaiah Simmons the same way. And I'm not saying he's wrong, by the way, because Isaiah Simmons is an unbelievable player. And I think. He's the kind of guy, uh, the comparison that I've been making is, I think he reminds me a lot of Derek Brooks, who is a perennial all-pro for the Bucks and ended up in the Hall of Fame. I think he could be that type of player, sort of Jamal Adams-ish as well, where he mm -hmm. can just be impactful in a million different ways. So while they do need a tackle, if they got Simmons, if the Giants got Simmons, if I was a Giants fan, I wouldn't be super disappointed because I know I'm getting a guy that has – that type of special potential. But then you look at trying to protect Daniel Jones and you say to yourself, okay, 
as good as this guy is, are we better served taking a tackle? And I think what that really comes down to is if you're Gettleman, how much do you like these tackles? If you don't think that they're all as good as many of us do, then maybe you go with Isaiah Simmons. Yeah, you know, you talk about ideal scenarios in the draft. I think, again, talking with with, uh, with Andy on this one was about the idea of saying, well, if you were going to go Simmons, listen, I, I think my preference is once you have that young quarterback, make sure that you're protecting him and there's enough issues across the offensive line, specifically on the left side with, with Soldier there, to think that you want to make sure that you attack that need. But if you can back down a couple of spots there, again, at the top of the draft, get yourself an extra pick, and then you still want to go with Simmons, that's a scenario that I can start to wrap my head around. It, it potentially gives you the flexibility then to say, whatever assets we pick up from that move, we can package up, not unlike what we did last year, to, to touch back into the back end of the first round and get Baker, and maybe we target one of these other offensive linemen, if that's the right. way you want to go with it. You know, and so, I mean, right. that, that it's an option there. The other thing is, Again, you talk about off-season moves. I, I don't know how much I can hang my hat on the performance of Nick Gates last season. I know that when he needed to come in, he graded out a lot better than than almost everyone else behind Zeitler on our offensive line. We bring in Fleming, who obviously has some familiarity with Jason Garrett on the offensive side of the ball. There's some competition there, and I just don't know. We, we, we've really debated the idea of how does Joe Judge feel about Soldier? What do they that occur for him or you know scheme issues you can make adjustments and maybe hide where he at, is at this point in his career is he rotating around to the right side what does that mean for the left side gates has been thrown around about rotating possibly into the center position which takes that need off the board for us early in the draft at least so there's there's so many possibilities i know for sure that that looking at the top of the draft and saying well and again, if you back down and I could have Simmons and maybe an extra pick, it's something that I, I could wrap my head around. But my ideal scenario is saying, take the, the offensive lineman that you love at four, get to that second round. And this is where that Ruiz possibility, if he was sitting there at four in the second, would we want to jump at that? Or you trade down and you say our next two opportunities are a combination, either order you want to put them, and that's edge rusher and then a wide receiver, and, and say that you're going to give a weapon for Daniel Jones, you're going to protect Daniel Jones, and then you're going to bring in some level of value to continue to get some pressure getting after the quarterback. But it is it's hard for me, at least from the outside, and not being able to get inside organizations and really know the evaluation of what is the drop-off between the talent of a Simmons versus every other player behind him at that position, and how do you grade that out relative to how you look at the offensive lineman available? Where are you looking at next year's draft and that possibility? But as a Giants fan and seeing the way Eli Manning got thrown around like a rag doll for so many years – it's the last thing that I want to see Daniel Jones start off his career with, running for his life, scrambling. We know he's more mobile, but it's still not the ideal scenario. You want to feel like you've at least locked that in and given this offense an opportunity to maybe carry a defense that still is a piece or two away, but you've already made some moves, however you want to evaluate them, bringing in Blake Martinez, bringing in Fackrell, bringing in Bradbury. You, you've improved this defense by how much that's up for debate, but you have at least improved that side of the ball. And now it's the offensive side, specifically the line that I think you have to, I mean, same thing with jets. You have to fix the line this draft, right? You can't, you can't leave your quarterback yeah. hanging out there for another year. Yeah, no question. The giants are in a weird spot though, because you're, so there are three defensive players in this draft that I think have just all world potential, right? And the three guys are Chase Young, Jeff Okuda, and Simmons. So I think any of those three 
would be a consideration for pretty much anybody if you're sitting in the top five or certainly in the top ten, right? And, and I love Okuda, I think, by the way, to your point. I I, I love him. And wow. I can make a case that I might be happier if the Giants were there and they weren't going to go offensive line. I can make the argument that I'd be happier if they went Okuda as opposed to Simmons. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm at the point now where if I was the Giants and Okuda dropped to me at four, I'm taking him. And that's mm. why I, I think the Lions may actually not end up trading down because Matt Patricia's in a situation where he's got to get an impact player right now to help save his job, basically, because if the Lions don't improve this year, he's done. So mm-hmm. if they trade down and he misses out on a guy that he really wants, like Akuda, especially after having traded Darius Slay to Philly, that could be a big problem. I mean, we'll see. It depends on the offers they get, I get, they get, I suppose. But for me, if I'm the Giants, I'm sitting at four. If Akuda falls to me, I think it's a no-brainer despite the offensive lineman just because I think he has the chance to be – and I said this to a friend of mine yesterday. First of all, I think he's the best corner that has been in the draft since Jalen Ramsey, and I think he has the potential to be everybody, every bit as good as Jalen Ramsey minus the off-the-field headaches. Mm. So I think you know when you look at a guy like that, he is the cream of the crop at a position that is incredibly important. It's not like we're talking about a wide receiver, and this is why, where I get back to somebody like Jerry Judy or CeeDee Lamb. I love both those guys. They're really good, but there are a lot of receivers in this draft, and receivers just not as important a position as a corner. You can get productive receivers fairly easily. Corners are very, very difficult to come by. And a player like Simmons is similar in the sense that you very rarely get a player like him that can do really every single thing on the football field at an elite level. Jamal Adams is what the Jets have, and, and you watch him, and it's a similar situation. And there's talk now about, oh, are the Jets going to try to trade Jamal Adams? And to me, unless somebody blows you away, it would be crazy to do that because of the fact that just like Simmons isn't just the linebacker or just the safety because he can do everything, He's a defensive playmaker. Same thing with Jamal Adams. So I think if you're the Giants and you're sitting there at four, if somebody makes you a really good trade off or you trade out, but as much as you need that offensive tackle to be in a position where you might be able to get Akuda or Simmons, and now there's no way they're getting Chase Young. Let's just throw that out there. He's not yeah. going past number two. <laughs> but if you could get Okuda or Simmons, I could see where it would be very tempting. If it's Akuda, I would take him, no question. If it's Simmons, you could persuade me to take him at four if I'm the Giants. It's tough, though, because like you said, they've got to improve that offensive line. But I think what you may try to do is, as you said, if you can entice, say, the Dolphins or the Chargers to trade up with you a spot or two, drop back, maybe get an extra pick, and then you grab Simmons and then use that extra pick to go back into the end of the first round and say grab uh, Isaiah Wilson, who you were talking about before, then maybe it's a workable scenario. So it's a difficult thing because does Isaiah Simmons become a player that's just too good to pass up? Mm -hmm. And that might be what Dave Gettleman thinks. It's hard to say. 
But, you know, the, the interesting part about it, too, for me is you talk about the needs and trying to figure it out. The reason why Okuda, again, would be tempting for me is because I look at it as, well, Bradbury, you know, you sign him to a contract. It's, it's a three-year rental. I, I always kind of put it in that kind of frame. He's a good player, and he can be quality for you, but the team's not ready to win yet. It does improve you in that area of your defense. Even though we took Baker last year, what you can really look at is saying, okay, so two years from now, would you like, assuming that Baker can develop and showed some of that development last year at the back end of the season, if you want to move ahead a couple of years and say two, three years from now, you could be sitting there with Okuda and Baker. And if Sam Beal is still a part of this team or you bring in another piece, whatever the case may be, I think sometimes fans get a little bit too caught up in saying, well, we just brought in Bradbury and free agency. But it's never just about what you, you just did for this upcoming year or the next two seasons. Right. It's also about where you're going to be a few years down the line. And sure. I know Lewis Riddick had mentioned this in regards to Jamal Adams of saying the safety position, no. Is it the most important on the field? Maybe not. But once you get a guy like Adams, who is a different type of safety in the NFL, right. who is a playmaker, that's when even though the idea of the contract and what that might look like would be expensive for the position, it's also based on who that player is and what he can mean for your team on that side of the right. ball. The The other element that I was interested in talking to you about too was when you look at both of these teams and saying a lot of needs, a lot of areas to improve, it's not going to be a one-year fix in the draft or in free agency for either either one of us. How no. much do you maybe say, you guys have two picks in the sixth round to go along with two in the third. How much work do you maybe, would you prefer doing as much work as you can? So maybe grabbing three or four bodies or just four bodies in the first two to three rounds and not worrying so much about some of these backup pieces or do you like to spread it out? What's your approach in terms of, of packaging up some of the assets and really trying to move and target a specific player that you have on your draft board as, as opposed to saying, well, we got ourselves a linebacker and another backup offensive lineman potentially in the fourth and fifth rounds versus that one key player in the mid third that cost us something to go get. I think it really depends on who's available at each of your picks. So I think if a guy that you really like drops further than you expected, so let's just throw this out there. Let's say that a guy like Jalen Johnson, uh, the corner from Utah, who I absolutely love, I think he has potential to be a lockdown corner. I, right now, most people think he's going to go late first, early second, right? But because of the way this draft works, they haven't had a chance to really check out the medicals, and he's had three injuries on his shoulder. So maybe teams are nervous. Perhaps he slides down to the end of the second or the beginning of the third. At that point, if you're the Jets, if you really like Jalen Johnson, maybe now you think to yourself, here's a guy we never thought we'd be able to get at this point in the draft. Maybe we make a move up a little bit. I think you have to be leery of the strengths of the draft and the weaknesses of the draft too. So for instance, if you're using those sixth round picks, if there are guys that you have marked up on your board that you think could be immediate contributors, then that's a different story. Like here's an example. The running back position in this draft is really interesting because I don't think there are that many guys that are going to be star running backs and that are going to be worthy of really early picks. But there are, are quite a few guys, guys like Eno Benjamin from Arizona State, Joshua Kelly from UCLA, Keyshawn Vaughn from Vanderbilt, Anthony McFarlane Jr. from Maryland, who hopefully for his family's sake will be remembered better than his father's commentary on Monday Night Football 
But <laughs> I think if, if you pinpoint one of those guys and say we could get one of those guys in the fifth or sixth, then that pick maybe becomes a little more useful to you. But I've always been of the belief that the picks beyond round four, five, six, and seven, there's not a huge difference between those and the value of getting undrafted free agents. So if you can use those picks to get useful pieces, like for instance, I mentioned this the other day and I got a lot of pushback, but I don't really care. I said, Leonard Fournette is apparently available you can get him for two years on a relatively cheap deal with no guaranteed money. I would investigate the possibility of flipping a day three pick to Jacksonville for him, depending on what the offers are that they get. I wouldn't be giving up a a valuable pick for him, but think about it. If you're going to be drafting a running back anyway, Fournette hasn't even turned 25 yet. Last year, he showed that he's come a long way as a receiver. You know, he's a bulldozer as a runner. There's been injury issues and, there have been some concerns character-wise, but for a day three pick, that's really what you use your day three picks on, right? On depth, on special teams guys, on long-term projects. You use them to trade up or you use them to acquire other pieces. For instance, the Jets traded a seventh-round pick for Alex Lewis last year who started a significant number of games at guard. So I think it really kind of depends on how the board falls, but I'm 100% not against using those picks to move up if you see somebody that you like that you think is dropped further than you expected. It, it really, a lot of this to me depends on where guys go and how the board breaks because I'm not usually all that into trading up ahead of the draft. The exception was the year the Jets got Darnold. I was fine with that because I knew that on draft night the price was going to go up. And by trading up to number three, I knew they were going to get a quarterback that I liked. Most cases, I don't like making deals until you're getting relatively close to the pick and you have an idea of how the board is falling. So I think that right now you would like to keep all those picks in the first four rounds, but you could maybe move one or two if you really have to. Like I said, let's say you want to jump the Browns to grab a tackle in round one or maybe somebody slides in round two or round three, maybe you do it. But the the other picks, the fifth and sixth rounders, I think you have them earmarked for depth pieces or for guys, like I said, that are playing running back or project pieces. If you can use those to move up and get meaningful players that you think can help you day one, then yeah, there's no question you should strongly consider doing it. Well, that's like when you think about Fournette and the teams. I know a lot of teams getting thrown out there of possible interest, but when they, they highlight a team like the Steelers, you give up a day three pick to bring in, like you said, a, a sub-25-year-old Leonard Fournette to put behind that offensive line with some of the injury right. concerns they've had at their running back position. Tremendous value there relative to taking a running back that, that may not even make your starting day roster necessarily uh, by the time mm-hmm. you're selecting. One of the things well, – you brought up a couple of things there – Young talent, if you end up selecting in the back end of the rounds, where where should fans be looking at players that get taken maybe the year prior, two years prior, and have either played to a depth role on a roster, possibly have found themselves on the practice squad? We just recently talked with Jonathan Hilleman from the Giants, a guy that I love. He's a local Jersey product. You can go back and look at him and say, I think there's a lot, a lot of quality things that he can do for a team. But when fans see a player that gets drafted, and he actually came in after the draft, but 
he's on the team, ends up on the practice squad, gets brought up for a few games last year. They, they release him, sign him to a futures contract. It feels like if you're a player that gets drafted and you don't see them, Reggie White Jr. for the Giants is wide receiver again that was on the practice squad for them. If you don't see them, it seems like fans automatically going to the next draft are saying, well, we need X player, X position, whatever the case may be. How long do organizations look at those type of developmental talents that you maybe end up taking in the back end of the draft as far as when it's time to move on from them or how, how invested are they? And, and maybe specifically in the Hilleman situation where they didn't draft him, but as when we talked to him, he mentioned saying, when you get past the draft, it's the Giants specifically reached out to him and said, we wanted to come to you. We, we, we like your skill set. We want to have you be a part of this roster. So you feel like there's some level of commitment of developing that. Do, the, do you think the Giants look at Hilleman and have that thought process of saying, we're only of this guy we, we, we still think we can bring him along or do they pivot pretty quickly year to year in terms of evaluating a late a late round pick like that and maybe saying okay it's time to bring in the next wave I think it really depends on what they think of the guy after a year I think you shouldn't be afraid to cut bait if you have evaluated the guy and just don't think he's going to cut the mustard but I also think that you shouldn't just give up on guys that you may like and struggled at times. So Chumadoga is an example with the Jets. Chumadoga was a third round pick last year and he started a little bit at left tackle, a little bit of right tackle out of necessity. He had his moments at right tackle, at left tackle. He was pretty bad. He ended up getting hurt, missed the rest of the season. And now you go into year number two. There are some people that have basically decided that they should give up on him. I think the organization still likes him. So they may value him as the potential right tackle of the future. And so that being the case, maybe they don't want to make a ton of investments at that particular spot. It's hard to say. And then there could be guys like the perfect example for me is somebody who jets and giants fans both know very well snacks Harrison. Now remember he was an undrafted free agent out of, uh, I can't remember exactly where he went to now off the top of my head, but I know it wasn't anywhere that you would be able to identify off the top of your head if you weren't a hardcore football fan. And so <laughs> he ends up coming into the league and he's on the Jets practice squad. He gets elevated and he turns into an excellent player. But he was a guy that they really had their eye on who turned into a really good player and after the first year, they had evaluated him like, you know what? We think we may have something in this kid. Another example with the Jets is Nathan Shepard. The story goes, from what I understand, he was picked in the third round by Mike McCagnin uh, last year. Didn't do much. And this year, he started the season suspended for uh, performance enhancers, I believe. But when Greg Williams came in, he started looking at the tape to see, okay, which of these guys do I, I really want to work with? Who, who was underused, who was underutilized, and apparently he loved Shepard's tape. And so a lot of fans had decided Shepard was a sunk cost off his rookie season, having been picked in the third round, but then he comes in after the suspension and Greg Williams used him in a different way and he was very productive. Foley Fadakasi, another example. He was a sixth-round pick by the Jets last year and he didn't do much. Greg Williams comes in here, decides to use him in sort of that Snacks Harrison-ish type of role, and he excelled and did really, really well, whereas a lot of fans had given up on him as a sunk cost. So sometimes you've got to 
really just kind of trust your judgment and trust your instincts, regardless of where a guy was picked, whether he was picked really high or really low, you kind of have to do that self-evaluation and decide, is this a guy that we think can be a real piece for us going forward or should we be looking in the draft to get somebody else? And so I think that's really what the Giants and the Jets and every other team has to do. And that's what Bill Belichick does better than anybody else because you'll see all the time, oh, what do you mean? Bill Belichick cut a guy that he picked in the third round last year? Well, yeah, what happened was Belichick picked a guy in the third round that he thought could fit what he wanted to do. The guy came in, took a good enough look at him, decided, man, this guy isn't what I thought he would be in my defense or in my offense. And I only have so many roster spots because I'm the most successful general manager slash coach in the league. So I'm going to move on and I'm going to use one of my other draft picks at this position to try and get a guy that does fit what I thought this guy was going to be able to do. We've seen him do that a bunch of times. You can't be afraid to do that. But at the same time, if you like a guy, regardless of whether he was a second round pick, third round pick or an undrafted free agent, you should sort of decide, okay, this is a guy that we want to move forward with. And maybe we don't need to replace him in the draft. Yeah, and not to, not just to draw on the Bill Belichick connection, but it's interesting to think about, to your point, the Giants are in this turnover year, entirely new coaching staff. Joe Judge comes in, right. and it'll be interesting to see. You'll find out in training camp and early on here about how he's evaluated the talent on the roster, and you're going to see some guys that maybe, as fans, you're a little bit higher on or think are a more important component to this team. They may drop down the depth chart. They may find themselves out of the job because he comes in and watches that tape and says it's not going to fit what I'm looking to do with him. Uh, you know, just to... I uh, nobody knows whether or not I had this in my mind or quietly typed while you were uh, while you were speaking to find what's <laughs> this that I'm a fan of knowledge so I had a tidbit to throw in as well the the other thing to touch back on when you talk about value uh in the draft and making those selections at the certain points it's interesting to think about a couple of players on the Giants roster that I'm curious about. I agree with you in that sense of making those pre-draft trades is not something that I like because you never know who could have been available at a particular spot. But as you come up on, uh, on a fourth round selection or maybe the late third in the Giants case, then you can start to say, well, if X player is available for us, now we can move maybe a piece from our roster. And the two players that obviously come to mind for me is one guy that, that's dealing with injuries, and that's Evan Ingram. And the other player is Golden Tate. And you talk about getting into a place in the draft where maybe the Giants can be sitting there, and if a team comes knocking in and around the third or fourth round and wants to offer something to get an Evan Ingram, and we see that we have a replaceable tight end there that's draftable or replaceable wide receiver, that makes it a lot more reasonable for me to make that move. Because if a team came and said, we want, say you want Golden Tate, veteran, he could plug into a win now team. Sometimes I take a look at a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and think, a valuable weapon that you could plug into the slot for Tom Brady to go along with the wealth of, of weapons that he already has there. But if I make that move now for whatever fourth round selection, and all of a sudden I find myself sitting at the top of the fifth and I still haven't found a receiver to bring into this room. Well, now all I've done is create a problem for my team as opposed to having a, a, uh, an opportunity to get better through these trades and, and through these opportunities that could present themselves on draft day. Thoughts on, and really, this is just a way for me to massage into the question. Thoughts on Evan Ingram? Thoughts on Golden Tate? Do you see them from the outside looking in? How do you evaluate a guy, specifically like Evan Ingram? Young player, a lot of injuries. 
is he someone that other teams look at and still feel like has tremendous upside? Because I have a battle with a lot of Giants fans who think you couldn't possibly give up him for less than a first round, back end first round selection, maybe a second round selection. And I keep going back to him and saying, well, he's been in the year, he's going to be in the league now four years. He was a first round selection, four years in, injury plagued, hasn't necessarily lived up to it. He's a tight end, not the highest value position. We brought in Caden Smith, more than serviceable last year for us, brought in Toyola in the offseason now, a blocking tight end. I just don't know if inside of Joe Judge's system, he's as concerned about an athletic, speedy tight end as he is about proper blocking and execution of play scheme. Is there a is there a league perspective on a guy like that that maybe Giants fans don't get from the inside looking out? Ingram's an interesting case because he's a really good player, but he's hurt all the time. So the question sort of becomes, like you said, does he fit what Joe Judge wants to do? And do the Giants believe that he's ever going to stay healthy? So if the answer to those questions becomes no, then maybe you do look to shop him. As far as Golden Tate, there's another guy. Now, he's 32 years old, I believe. I like him a lot, loved him coming out of Notre Dame, wanted the Jets to draft him the year that they took Kyle Wilson at, I think, 29 overall, and Tate ended up slipping into the second round. I like him a lot, but you have to ask yourself, he's 32 years old, you're going through a bit of a rebuilding, you saw what Slayton could do last year, so you know that he's capable. Is he somebody that if you could get something for him, you move him? Now, to be fair, Tate has had his injuries and he is 32, so I don't know what you're getting for him. But, yeah, I, I, I think they're guys that if you can move them and get draft picks, if there are guys that you like, you should consider it. Engram's a really interesting one because I think that if he was on the block, there would certainly be interest. The rumor was that the 49ers liked him, so they might be looking to, to bring him in and team him with, uh, with George Kittle. I, I don't – I mean, it's hard because you're, you're stuck in that weird thing that the Jets are in and what they were in with Robbie Anderson last year specifically, which is how much do you like Robbie Anderson? Are you going to pay him? Because if memory serves, Engram's contract is probably coming up relatively soon. So how – much do you like him? Are you planning to pay him? Do you think he's a good mix with Daniel Jones? Do you think that he's a good fit for what Joe Judge wants to do? And then from there, it becomes, okay, do we want to take him away from Daniel Jones because we want to give this kid as many weapons as possible? It's the same thing with Tate. He's 32. We're rebuilding, but don't we want to give Daniel Jones as many weapons as we can to throw to? So you kind of got to balance that out. I guess it really depends on what the offers would be. I don't know what you get for Tate. Like I said, at best, maybe you're getting a conditional late three, uh, late day three pick, so I'm not sure that that's worth it. With Ingram, you might be able to do a little bit better considering his age. The injuries would take him down a peg, but if you could get a third or fourth round pick, maybe you think about it. But it, it's tough because, like I said, you really got to balance – the need to surround Jones with as many weapons as possible with the need to rebuild and get picks to get young players on the roster. 
Well, and that's because I, I keep coming to this scenario of uh, the Green Bay Packers and maybe saying a fourth and a sixth to get Ingram into that into that team and give Aaron Rodgers an extra incredible weapon that, if healthy, could really get them over the hump potentially on the back end of the season or in playoff runs for them. And whatever I could get, I'd probably take because, to your other point, he is going to be coming up on a contract. And the idea of, let's say, you know, Austin Hooper making $10.5 million, or you want to throw out some, uh, some of the other names, you know, you're talking about spending seven to 10 million on a player like that on a new contract and when you look across the Giants roster and the other players that are going to come up on their deals in the next couple of years I also don't see the Giants investing that much money at the tight end position so I think that's the part of it too is if he's not in your long-term future then you might as well get the value that you can get from now whatever it may be you know likewise for Golden Tate the age considerations as well and I don't know at what point do you say, well, if someone's going to throw you a sixth rounder, is that worth it versus having him on the roster just to provide a little bit of security for Daniel Jones versus taking that asset and trying to work with it? And it also ties into your point about Belichick and player evaluation and being willing to say, yes, it was a year or two since we brought this player in through the draft, but at a certain point, we have to acknowledge that it hasn't worked, injuries, fit, scheme, all those things, and not feeling like you invested X asset in the draft and you need to see it through. You need to keep waiting, keep waiting. The Giants, thankfully, in a lot of ways, under Gettleman, made that choice when it came to Odell Beckham Jr., right? Premier talent. What an incredible incredible asset he is on the field, even for a young quarterback like Daniel Jones, if he was still there. And yet you look what happens in Cleveland and it's, you know, they haven't gone anywhere with Odell Beckham on that team. As of right now, that could change. He, he could potentially end up on a third team, a fourth team before his career is all said and done and detaching yourself from the emotional investment that you feel like your team has made in some of these players is something that a lot of people struggle to do. And to your and to your point, Bill, Belichick has been able to do that in spades year after year. And it's what affords him the ability to turn over the roster, get some assets, and keep trying to find the right couple of key players that are going to move that roster in the right direction. Yeah, no question. That's really what it comes down to is proper roster management and basically weighing the pros and cons of having everybody on your roster that you currently have. Would it make more sense for you to try and trade a guy and get a draft pick? And that's where the Leonard Williams thing came in for the Jets last year. They knew they weren't going to pay him. They knew they were stocked well at that position. And so they figured better to trade him and get the best deal you can get rather than let him walk. And then maybe you get a comp pick, maybe you don't. So that's really what the Giants kind of have to decide. If Evan Ingram's not going to be a guy they want to invest in long term, then maybe you trade him now. With Tate, it becomes a tougher question because I don't know that you're really going to get much. And maybe you want to make sure that Daniel Jones has him because he's an experienced season target. And so at least it gives him somebody to throw to along with Slayton. But yeah, those are things that they're definitely going to have to weigh out as they build out this roster after the draft even, because once they go into the draft and figure out what they do at wide receiver, then they'll probably have a clearer idea. Or if they get a tight end that they like, that maybe they feel is capable of replacing Evan Ingram. Yeah. And a couple, a couple of quick questions before we let you get out the door, Scott Mason giving us just a, a papoose of time today in his busy schedule, uh, tight end specifically, a couple of things, a player, when you think about like a Dalton Keene out of Virginia tech, not not buried on a depth chart at his school, but looks like he could potentially be a sleeper at the tight end position. A guy like uh, like Sullivan out of LSU, who's behind Thaddeus Moss there, all indicators are based off Tom Well, look at college level, and sometimes some of the top teams end up burying talent. How, 
what what's the risk reward on looking at a guy that maybe you don't get as much tape on because a team at the college level has so much talent they get buried a little bit and how how do teams try to attack that in the draft and say well this guy's worth the fourth or fifth round pick even though I'm basing off of a relatively small sample size going back and looking at his tape and then you're basically a lot even a lot more of your of your value is maybe being put into what they do at the combine in terms of those measurables. It's funny you mention that because that's sort of what happened with the Jets with Christopher Herndon. Herndon had injuries and he had been buried behind David Njoku. So you really weren't sure what you could get out of him at the next level, but you knew he had soft hands. You knew that when he did play, he looked good and he tested pretty well. So the Jets ended up drafting him in the fourth round. Now, Last year he was suspended, and then he got injured, so he barely played at all. But his rookie season, he did very, very well. So it, those are the things that you really have to look at when you're drafting a tight end along the lines of the ones that you're talking about because there really aren't too many ways to look at what they did on the field if they were blocked or if they didn't play a lot. So you kind of have to – take that small sample size, combine it with what they did at the combine, and then look at the traits and see what you like. This is where having private workouts actually would have helped a lot for some of those guys. But unfortunately, because of what's going on, that's just not the case right now. But I think that's really how you have to approach it. And that's how you get a bargain type of player, which is the kind of thing that we hope the Jets got with Christopher Herndon. We certainly Mm – came away with that impression after his rookie year in 2018 and we'll see in 2020 if he can stay healthy if he continues to build on that but that's really what you need to look at if you're going to try and draft a tight end in that range yeah prince Wananogo uh, on an offensive line prospect i think is one of those guys that suffered from not being able to have those workouts as well because he was coming off an injury didn't get to work out the combine the private workouts and, and potentially a pro day was going to be where he got to showcase himself and now that may have, I, I feel like he could be a potential one of those guys that falls a little bit and some team could maybe get a little bit of value with him as well. Uh, listen, more than more than generous with your time, before we before we get out the door here, what is a day in the life of Scott Mason right now, the, the week of the <laughs> NFL draft? I know you've been doing this a long time, so year by year, how, uh, how interesting, how exciting, how frantic is these, these days leading up to the draft night? Oh, man. Well, just to give you an idea, so we do the daily shows, and I've been recording and producing and putting all these together. So we've had a ton of different people coming on to analyze the draft from a variety of different aspects. We actually did, and your listeners might be interested in this as well, uh, in-depth profiles on all four of the top four offensive linemen because any of them could be in play for the Giants too. So we looked at the tape. We talked to people that covered them at their respective schools, somebody who covered Georgia for Andrew Thomas, and then Louisville with Makai Becton, Iowa with Tristan Wirfs, and Alabama in the case of Jedrick Wills. And so have been putting those together, and that's been taking up a ton of my time. But then when it gets to actual draft night, and I was telling you this story before we started recording, but last year was insane. All day I was trying to, you know, talk to people, get a sense of what was going on. There were all kinds of rumors flying around. And then during the actual draft, my friend Joe Blewett, who does the film for JetsXFactor.com, and he's 
fantastic with it. He comes on the show a ton. We break down film. And he was in uh, Canada. He had gone to Niagara Falls. He was on the Canadian side. He had just proposed to his fiance, well, now fiance. And they were walking, they had to walk back three plus miles to their hotel because they couldn't get any, um, any internet. So they couldn't get an Uber. And because he couldn't get any internet, he couldn't track what was going on in the draft. So I'm sitting here watching the draft and I get a frantic phone call from him asking me to tell him what was going on. <laughs> and so I ended up having to put the phone up to the screen when the jets picked. And, uh, <laughs> we both were thrilled with the Jets pick and he let out a huge yell and he was screaming and yelling and probably all these poor Canadians were standing there wondering what this crazy American was doing. I, I think my neighbors called the police because I was yelling so loud. And so then after that, we recorded a podcast, myself and Chris Nimbley from JetsInsider.com. And I was up till four in the morning. And that's pretty much how, how that goes. Every night during the draft, uh, my day ends around 4 a.m. And it starts up again a couple hours later. So I don't sleep. And leading up to the draft, it's nonstop draft stuff. So basically, as soon as we spend a week after free agency is over, going through all the free agency stuff, and then it's wall-to-wall draft. So the month of April has more or less been all draft, nothing but draft, and, and much of March as well. So, it's, yeah, it's just been absolutely insane. I don't anticipate getting a frantic phone call from the streets of Canada again this year, <laughs> but who knows? Anything's nope. possible. Maybe I'll get a call from somebody who's quarantined and can't get internet access or something. Always be prepared, right? You never know who's going to need you in, the, in those desperate times when you have nothing but free time on your hands to be holding up telephones to TV screens for somebody. That, no, that, is, that is too good. And I also like that your, that your friend is in the streets of Canada uh, you know, you, listen, it's a time to celebrate, obviously, uh, get, you get, gets a lovely young woman, I'm sure to accept his proposal. And then also going to need to make sure I know where the jets are going at the top of the draft. Well, she knows what she's marrying. I mean, <laughs> that's on the forefront, right? The life we have chosen as they say. So she knew, and it's not like she didn't know that that night he was going to want to be focusing on the draft after the dinner, but at least he got her to say yes first. Before saying, hey, honey, guess what? Uh, the internet's down. We got to walk back three plus miles to the hotel. <laughs> and also, I have to call Scott so that I can find out what's going on in the draft. So, thankfully, mm-hmm. he got that yes first because maybe the answer would have been different after that. I don't know. Got to put it, got to put it through the paces to see if she's really invested in this relationship (laughs) (laughs) in these times of, uh, in these times of isolation, in, in the brief moments you have in between all the draft coverage. Are you, are you watching any, are you into any shows? I know you've done a lot of that in the off season, some non-football related stuff. Is there, is there a Netflix? I don't know. I don't know if I know the name, right. It's like uh, hot or not. There's some type of weird Island romance show that's been going on there. Is there, is there any shows that you're tuned into that people that people should know about? Cause I've been, I'm always searching. I, it turns out I can consume a lot of content in a given 24 hour period. If I can't leave my apartment. I have not watched that hot or not thing, but two shows that I have watched that have become pretty hot Netflix shows one of them was Tiger King. It's that seven-part documentary on all that lunacy. Uh, you've seen a million memes, I'm sure, at this point on Twitter and on Facebook and wherever else, Instagram, about it. It's about seven hours long total, 
and we binge watched it and got through it in one night. Just it's like a car crash. You can't look away. And then <laughs> the other one that we binge watched the whole series or three seasons is called Ozark with uh, Jason Bateman. And oh, yes, it's yes, really, yes. really good. Yeah, the, the, I won't spoil it, but basically the gist of it is he starts out the show as a money launderer for the Colombian drug cart or the Mexican drug cartel, I should say. And that's all I'll really tell you, but it's really, really good. And then the other thing that I've been trying to catch up on, I've been so far behind on better call Saul that I've been slowly working my way through. Cause when the quarantine started, I was up to season four. I'm now halfway through season four and working my way up to season five. So that's really kind of where my focus has been. I've also been watching a lot of, uh, and they've been new episodes, so I can't say that I'm binging it, but if you haven't seen any of them yet, I highly recommend it. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, they're really interesting. It's called, uh, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, not Beyond the Ring. It's uh, Dark Side of the Ring. So oh, okay. last season, I think there were six episodes, and then this season, I think there's going to be ten, but they're, we're halfway through season two. And essentially what it is, is it's a one hour look each week at some of the seedier stories in pro wrestling. And there's been a lot of really crazy stuff. For instance, this past week, there was the look at the death of Nancy Argentino and whether or not Jimmy Superfly Snuka was involved in the death. And Jimmy Superfly Snuka, obviously a legendary pro wrestling figure this week. In fact, as we speak, Adam, Tonight, I believe the episode airs, there's a look into uh, the murder of Dino Bravo, who was a WWE wrestler or WWF wrestler back in the 80s and who was killed by the mafia in Canada. So there's a look into how all that kind of happened. Last season, there was one about Gino Hernandez, who died under mysterious circumstances. He was a longtime wrestler down in the Texas Mid-South area. And there's, it's just a really, really good series. I, I think that even if you're not a wrestling fan, like I said, you'd enjoy it. So Dark Side of the Ring, Tiger King, Better Call Saul, and Ozark has really been kind of what's occupying my non-draft time. But as you said, unfortunately and fortunately, unfortunately because I feel like I don't have a moment to breathe, but fortunately because I do love doing it, the draft has been more or less taking over my life for the last month or so. So, <laughs> yeah, I like, I like the idea that dark side of the ring, it's, you know, a little behind the scenes of, of something I like, and then also a little true crime thrown in there. I think, you know, you get those yeah. couple of elements and you're really, you can, you can suck me in on that. Uh, no, man, I, I think uh, Shit's Creek. I went ahead and dove back in on that. The Eugene Levy series uh, on Netflix now, because that series I think just wrapped. So that's a good, just a nice little light taste of comedy for anybody. And then, um, like you, Ozark, man, that, that once that came out, I was just like, okay, I'll just binge this entire season immediately. But I actually had to relive a little bit with my girlfriend because she was catching up on some episodes. I'll, I'll throw out to you, to the people out there as well, uh, Dispatches from Elsewhere was, is a, is a, a short mini series that Jason uh, Siegel did on AMC. It's weird, a little quirky, odd. That's kind of like, I think, coming to the conclusion of what may be the only season of it. So that's been a really fun one as well. But in these uh, in these quarantine times, man, I'm always looking for something. I know that much. 
thank you again to Scott Mason for coming on with us. I, I always reference you from Play Like a Jet a podcast. I know that there's plenty more that you're doing. You mentioned some additional uh, coverage outlets that you're going to be working with heading into this draft week and draft night. Where can the people find you, friend? Well, mostly you can find me anywhere where you can download podcasts. Uh, Apple, Spotify, Google Play. You can send a telegram or something, I think. I'm not entirely sure how that works. But um, all the episodes are available. We do daily shows. And if you're a Giants fan, the beauty of it is, because we're doing all this draft coverage, I'm doing it from a Jets-centric point of view. But there's a ton of stuff on a lot of prospects that would be mutual of mutual interest to a Giants fan because, as Adam said, the Jets and Giants have a lot of the same needs this year. So – if you want to listen to those, I've had on a ton of people. In fact, one of my favorite episodes I, ha- I did this past Sunday, Nigel Burton, who's a morning show host out in the Portland area, but also a Pac-12 analyst and a longtime coach, mostly making his bones in the Pac-12 where he played as a player. He was a safety for the University of Washington back in the 90s. And then he was a coach for a really long time. At one point, he was the head coach, head football coach of Portland State. He came on and we talked Pac-12 prospects and really broke it down because, Adam, as you know, here on the East Coast, we don't necessarily pay as much attention to the West Coast teams. You know, you get a glimpse of some of the higher-level prospects, but we really dug in and talked about some guys that could be value on day two and day three. And Nigel had the has that rare – ability to break things down not only as an analyst but also uh, but also as a former player and a former coach so you Mm -hmm. get a real different perspective from him as opposed to a lot of these guys that are draft analysts who are all very valuable assets at this particular time but we break down the film we break down their career like so much so if you're into the draft coverage go ahead and check out play like a jet because like i said a lot of that stuff is going to be very relevant to Giant fans as well. And then we'll be doing shows every day. Immediate, we'll be taping immediately after the draft wraps each day. And so, again, we'll go over everything, including the Giants pick. So if you want to hear straight-up draft coverage and a little bit of that Giants stuff, we'll have that as well. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter, too, at PlayLikeAJet1. If you want to link to the podcast or – you want to interact on Twitter, any of that. So, yeah, pretty much any of those things is a good way that you can catch what I'm doing. And like I said, I, we, we go nonstop. It's seven days a week. Don't miss any shows. Even during this quarantine, we've been putting them out every day. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And hopefully we can do this again sometime after the draft. And hopefully we're both happy with what the Jets and Giants do. Fantastic sounding content there to listen in with the conversation you're having with Nigel and learn about some maybe prospects again, like you said, that that we may not be as familiar with the offensive line conversation you mentioned before. That's a great one to check out as well, because breaking down these prospects that the Giants can pull plenty of information out of there, regardless of of where you think the Jets may may go in terms of those opportunities in the first round of this draft. It, it's always a pleasure, man. This this episode is going to be going out by singing Telegram, so everyone can just go ahead and, and drop their <laughs> drop their drop their personal addresses. And an elderly man in some type of mail suit will show up at your door. We we had a nice. lengthy conversation, so sit back and enjoy this guy. He's a real tenor. Beyond that, follow follow <laughs> Scott Mason everywhere. I can't wait to uh, catch up with you after the 
draft and like you said hopefully be just be congratulating one another on on a successful 2020 nfl draft for the for the entire new york new jersey area many thanks again scott we, we will catch up with you soon absolutely man and i hope that that's what we're doing but it's the giants and jets we're talking about so let's be realistic we're probably gonna be <laughs> oh the sadness that is right <laughs> fingers crossed as we said earlier fingers crossed indeed there you have it another fantastic conversation with scott mason as we always say if you're not listening to him on the play like a jet podcast go over check it out just incredibly knowledgeable and obviously just just a lot of fun to talk with you can follow us on social media at one giant podcast head over to itunes download rate review and subscribe as we continue to build the empire that will be the one giant podcast brand and as andy mackowitz would say let's go big blue